We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another Watercooler Conversation. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Well, as I speak, Australians are about to go to the polls in a world that's being rapidly shaken by events. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has plunged Europe into a full-scale energy crisis. British consumers are facing electricity rises of 50% or more a year, and German industry is wondering, can it carry on with such a huge increase to its energy inputs? Inevitably, the spotlight falls on Australia, one of the countries that is most richly endowed with energy sources of almost every kind. Should we be able to shake off the burden of green tape and green activism and increase our production of coal and gas in order to supply that Western market and and help them resist the tyranny of Russia? Or are we forever bound up in this ever tightening circle of green restrictions? Well, Benny Pizer is the director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation in London. He's been following the climate policy debate for more than 25 years now, and he's one of the people who knows this better than almost anybody else. Benny is visiting Australia at the moment, and he joins me now from Sydney. Well, Benny, first of all, let's get an idea of the scale of the challenge we're facing with climate change. Are we facing what some would call a climate emergency or a climate crisis? Well, of course, we've had all sorts of um, rebranding of global warming, which we know has been happening. Um, The good news is global warming has been happening at a much lower speed than most climate models predicted. So if you look at the trend, the temperature trend over the last 30, 50, 70 years, um, the trend is at the low end of the predictions. It's more like um, 0.15 or 0.2 degrees per decade rather than 0.3 or 0.4 degrees. So the trend has been for many, many years, for decades, really at the low end and there are no signs of acceleration despite the acceleration of emissions. So this, it seems to be that um, the models are overheating and in reality the trend is very moderate and as I said at the low end of the IPCC scenarios. At the Menzies Research Centre we tend to not to get too deeply into the, the science. We're not scientists as such, so the scientific arguments will will lead to others. But it, it does matter in a policy sense insofar as the degree of warming affects the type of policy you take, right? I mean, if, if, it, is, if it was an emergency, which, which clearly in, 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 in my view it's not and in your view it's not, but if it was an emergency, you, you have to take quite radical action. It would be justified... Yeah. But but that's right. And you know, it is not an emergency because there is no government in the world that takes it <laughs> as seriously. They are basically doing business as usual, which is why emissions continue to grow and to rise, and there is no end in sight. 
there is no government in the world who is actually taking this as an emergency. So the emergency narrative, I'd be right in thinking, is, is, is part of the rhetoric of activists who, yeah. for whatever reason, yeah. want us to take quite drastic action. That's right. Um, it's, it's a scare tactic. It always has been a scare tactic. Um, but, you know, governments have to deal with reality. And even the most green governments are beginning to roll back. You just need to look at Europe, where we're facing the worst energy cost crisis since World War II. Most governments are now watering down, rolling back, going back to coal, all the things. I mean, even Joe Biden <laughs> is rolling back big time his climate agenda. And of course, the Indians, the Chinese have never, ever um, intended to, to do anything about emissions other than increase them. So you have, if you look at what governments around the world are actually doing, um, there's a limit to what they can do. And in actual fact, their main priority, uh, at least outside of Europe and, uh, you know, some Western countries, most governments prioritize economic stability or growth and uh, energy security and cost issues. That's their main priority and will remain so for decades to come. To what extent do you think that the uh, Russia's action in, in Ukraine has brought a sense of reality to this debate? No, absolutely. It's, uh, it, 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 you know, Putin essentially has blown up 30 years of European climate and energy policy. Uh, everything has changed and uh, nothing will remain as it was. As I said, the green agenda is disintegrating in front of our eyes in Europe. Um, countries like Germany, which is still relying for, uh, on, on coal for 40% of their electricity generation, uh, basically saying um, that they will extend the life of coal plants, of mothballed, uh, bring back old coal power plants, Coal is the big new energy resource in Germany. They are phasing out uh, nuclear, natural gas. They have a big problem because of Putin. So what there's left, they're left with coal. And a government that includes the Green Party is going back to coal. Can you imagine? Let's deal with nuclear at this stage. I frankly find it hard to understand why... Uh, green parties around the world have not embraced nuclear um, more fulsomely, shall we say. What about you? I mean, what, what's their problem with nuclear? Do, we, do you understand what their problem is? Yeah. I mean, basically, these green campaigners and activists are more concerned, are more worried about nuclear than they are about climate change. That's why they are shutting down the nuclear power plants in Germany. So the last three ones that are still running will be closed at the end of this year uh, in, you know, in face of the problems Germany is facing with Russian dependency on oil and gas. Um, so that's the reason why they're going back to coal, because they are phasing out nuclear. So they prefer essentially um, a situation where they can close down uh, zero uh, carbon emitting or CO2-emitting nuclear just because they are so scared of nuclear energy. That's, that's the main reason. 
and also because they do think, they do believe that you can power an industrial society by renewables alone. They believe that. They, they seriously believe that. Well, I mean, you, you, you can't, right? I mean, not, certainly not on the, on, the, on the present level of technology. What we have now, basically wind and solar, they're pretty rudimentary forms of energy generation, right? And, and, and they're not 24-hour, seven days a week. Exactly. And, 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 and they then say, well, we will develop the technologies of the future that will solve that problem of intermittency. But, of course, it's always pie in the sky. And for 30 years we've heard that there will be storage, batteries, and none of it is happening. All, everything is just completely irrelevant to the storage problem. So they're, they're, it's not going to happen, which is why most countries that go for big time for renewables essentially need two separate uh, electricity systems for periods when there isn't enough wind or no sun, they need a secondary system to power, you know, the society. We're often told, and indeed, you know, the, the Labour Party um, in, in its climate policy uh, claims that it will be cheaper if we went over to renewables. Based on your experience around the world, is there any country which has adopted those forms of renewables, wind and solar, and actually being able to produce cheaper electricity? No, of course not. And by the way, this claim is not just a Labour claim. In Europe, all Conservative parties make the same claim. So in Europe, there is an all-party consensus uh, claiming that renewables will bring down the cost. Uh, so in Britain, the, the Conservative government makes exactly the same claim. They, they, they say... Um, they are in favour of nuclear, but they're saying renewables is the future and they will be cheap. Um, in reality, of course, it's the opposite. Uh, consumers have to subsidise renewables uh, to a huge amount. In uh, Britain, it's uh, roughly 11 billion per year, uh, which equates to about 400 pounds per household. In Germany, it's 25 billion. Britain has spent roughly 80 billion in the last 10 years on renewables, which it's about £3,000 per household. So these are huge sums for many families. And instead of making energy cheaper, they are obviously making energy much more expensive. And uh, governments are not to be trusted with claims that renewables are cheap or making energy cheaper. Because in, if that were the case we wouldn't need to pump these millions and tens of millions into the green industry investors and lobbyists. One of the tricks, of course, and we've seen this actually in, in Labour's policy here, is that, is, is that they will ignore or push to one side the cost of new transmission. And yet, of course, if you put, even at the very basic level, if you put a wind farm you know, in, in some country location or offshore, you, you've got to install a lot of transmission capacity in order to get that ashore and then further to that if you're relying heavily on those forms of renewables you have to have connectivity you know across a wide area of the continent in order that you can pick up an area where the wind's blowing and when one area stops 
that it, it, when you say that, that you've, you've, you could be those figures, say, for Britain or Europe in terms of subsidies, would you be including transmission costs in that or is that on top of that? That's on top. And on top of that is also the backup costs. So the you know power plants that have to back up the renewables for periods of low generation, electricity generation, all of that is on top of the subsidies. Uh, and these um, knock-on costs are not covered by the renewable industry. This is, has to be covered by taxpayers. So the costs are quite staggering. And you know that they are not telling the truth simply because no one would build a wind farm without subsidies. Wind farms or solar power farms are simply not economic without subsidies. Um, otherwise, you know, these subsidies would be totally unnecessary, but they are necessary because without them, there is no renewable industry. You've been in Australia now for for a few a few days. You, you you've seen something of the debate here. Does it strike you as odd that a country that is so well endowed in resources, virtually every form of resource, energy resource you can imagine, is here in abundance? Does it strike you as odd that despite that we still struggle to set up a reliable electricity grid and uh, and it's yeah, relatively expensive. Uh, absolutely, it's it's quite unbelievable. Um, but we are dealing with a doomsday cult uh, that is fed by these kind of doomsday predictions. People are many people are fearful, which is the whole point of the scare tactics to make people fearful. And when you are anxious and fearful, you stop thinking clearly, you stop thinking rationally. And uh, we've seen it throughout history, throughout human history, we have these periods of collective fear and collective hysteria. And we know that these movements end in fiasco and um, they end uh, in tears. We've seen it in the past and I have no doubt that this green movement will cause a lot of pain and yeah, destruction. Yeah, it always seems to me that there's, once you get that, that fear factor you talk about, that almost cultish-like behaviour on the part of some, and combine that with um, commercial interests, so some people can see how they can make a buck out of this. I mean, obviously, say, renewable energy uh, companies in, in this case. You've then got a powerful combination, haven't you? Because you've got a, a sentiment plus money, essentially very hard to resist it absolutely and uh, it's very widespread in the western world of course you once you set foot outside the western world every other country has completely different priorities not least of you know having food on the table or keeping the lights on or having access to electricity um, but in the Western world, where most people have been spoiled because they have never seen hard times, these utopian uh, policies take hold. And as you said, there are huge vested interests who make billions um, from milking consumers.
And that's basically what, what it, it's a wealth transfer from the is, poor to so the rich. Rarely talked about, of course, Benny, and it's, it's refreshing to hear you talk about it. I mean, in the, in the, in the climate debate, it's very common to throw at think tanks like ours or your organisation, oh, you're funded by fossil fuels uh, manufacturers or fossil fuel producers. Uh, as, frankly, as somebody who has to balance the books in this organisation, I sometimes wish we were, but we're not. I mean, we, we, we're just going on the evidence. But what's, you know, what's never taken into account is the extent to which the green movement uh, may be funded by vested interests in renewables. I mean, for instance, we have this whole stream of candidates here, the teal candidates, they call themselves. They're supposed to be independent. They're getting a whole, a whole lot of money from somewhere. We're not quite sure where, but... It, it, Without wishing to point the finger, without having the evidence, it does seem to me that if you were wanting to produce renewable energy, you, you wanted the subsidies, you wanted to be able to get more of it into Australia, it would make sense to support you know, candidates that were going to be sympathetic to that, right? It would be naive to say that it doesn't go on. Well, it's, it's even worse than that. First of all, we, as a matter of principle, right from the start, when we uh, started about 13 years ago, decided we would not accept any money or donations from the energy industry or anyone with a significant interest in, in, in an energy company. So we've kept our complete independence from vested interest. Um, but Europe is, um, and, and Australia and the US, um, all of which still have huge resources, have also um, been faced with a campaign by Russia through their media platforms, their television stations, uh, against domestic production of fossil fuels, because <laughs> Russia can see the advantage of making European countries dependent on Russian oil and gas and coal, and they don't like the idea of Europe um, producing their domestic energy resources because it would make energy cheaper and it would uh, lessen the dependency. So it's not just the renewable in industry as a vested interest. There are big players, uh, you know, hostile countries who are using the green campaign to undermine domestic energy uh, independence or energy extraction. And that's one of the big problems in Europe. Uh, the former Secretary General of NATO made that point very clear that Russia has been funding campaigners, particularly against fracking. Uh, but I have no doubt uh, on other energy sources as well, because it's in the interest of Russia to make Europe dependent on its energy resources, which Europe <laughs> imports in huge quantities. Europe is spending a billion dollars every day uh, on Russian energy imports, $1 billion. And of course, Russia is dependent on that money and any competition they are fighting tooth and nail. And that's what the green movements essentially are doing, uh, helping Putin uh, in making Europe so dependent on foreign energy imports, which could be curtailed could be cut significantly if Europe were to be allowed. European countries would lift the bans on, on fracking and other extraction 
So this is a real national security problem. Um, governments have yet failed to tackle that properly. At the Venzis Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Benny, energy prices, as you say, have risen sharply in Europe. Uh, there are signs of what people call energy poverty, quite widespread. Uh, have, have they reached the peak of this or is it going to get worse? Well, um, just to give you an idea how bad the situation is in Britain, energy bills for households and, and businesses have essentially nearly doubled in April to where they were a year ago or 18 months ago, doubled from about a thousand pounds to two thousand pounds for the average household in the UK. And there are fears and realistic um, fears that this might go up by another 800 pounds by the end of the year when the price cap, the so-called price cap, will be raised again. Now, the latest news out of the UK I read today is that the, the, the latest survey suggests that about 40% uh, of households uh, are struggling to pay their electricity and gas bills, their energy bills, and it's expected that by end of this year, about 25% of British households will not be able to pay their energy bills. Now, what that means is that a lot of energy supplies will essentially go bankrupt. If, if a quarter of their consumers can't pay the bills, they will go bankrupt, and I fear that um, large chunks of the energy industry and particularly the suppliers will be nationalized as an emergency issue under a conservative government, incidentally. Um, so we are facing unprecedented uh, crisis and no one knows how this is going to um, work out because how, go how are families going to heat their homes in winter if they can't pay their bills? I have no idea. So in Australia right now, we're facing an election. We've got policy choices to make, but would you be moving to what the Labour Party is proposing, which is they're saying we're not going to, you know, household energy bills are going to come down. We're just going to tax the big polluters. We're just going to put a penalty on the big polluters. Uh, that, that, that to me is, is Mickey Mouse economics, isn't it, if you, if you start taxing? Of course. Well, all that happens is that the um, energy producers or suppliers will pass on the cost to consumers. Anyway, that, that's all that happens. They will pass it on to consumers. So this idea that you can uh, lower the cost, the only way 
to lower the cost is to use taxpayers' money uh, to bring down prices. Uh, but that, uh, again, is Mickey Mouse economics because it's the taxpayers' money that you use. So um, I'm afraid uh, you will see, in, in my view, a similar development in Australia as we've seen in Europe, that energy prices, and they have been ri uh, uh, rising for the last 20 years, essentially, ever since this green agenda was uh, introduced and every every... Uh, ever since all the kind of conventional power generation was disincentivized or taxed and so on. Um, so I expect the worst for Australia in the near term uh, because that's the trajectory. Uh, they are trying to copy what the Europeans have been doing and uh, I expect the same results. We followed the news from Ukraine with, with shock and horror and disgust, I guess. We want to do something to help. I mean, clearly, we're not in a position to... We're not, we're not a, a big domestic manufacturer of, of arms, for instance, so we're not in a position to send too much of those over. We, we, we don't have a large standing army that we can send to mass on, on the Ukrainian border. But it does seem to me if we wanted to help, if we wanted to assist uh, those countries, not just Ukraine, but countries like Poland, uh, Hungary, countries that are on the edge of this... One of the best things we could do, in fact, probably by far the best thing we could do would be to send them as much coal and gas as we can. And of course, we can do that, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> and, and Europe is um, looking around the world for alternative, alternative energy importers to wean themselves off the dependence on Russia, which is a urgent need for European countries. It's not just Poland, Hungary, it's Germany, it's um, many European countries, not just the East European countries, are dependent on Russian energy sources. So, you know, we need more energy sources from North America, from Australia and other parts of the world uh, from less unsavory places, let's put it this way. Um, and we need to really get our domestic uh, extraction going again, because there are still huge resources, conventional and unconventional, uh, in the ground, which cannot be touched because governments have in under pressure from the green movement have, uh, in, have you know, implemented bans on drilling, bans on fracking. And there are still, I mean, Europe still sits on about 300, 400 years of coal, perhaps 50 years of natural gas. These are, you know, existential resources which are left in the ground. Um, and instead, uh, Europeans are going and begging Russia for energy, which is crazy. Well, you've seen here, I mean, we want to open up more gas production in the Northern Territory, for instance, but what we come up against all the time is, is, is red tape, green tape, lawfare, you know, many frequently court actions taken and funded by green parties with, with no object other than to slow the approval process down. How do we cut through that? What's the solution? Well, unfortunately, 
um, there is no shortcut and there is no short-term solution. It, it, my guess is uh, it's going to get much worse before it gets better. Um, we might have hit the threshold in Europe. People are... Um, the, the latest uh, survey in Britain suggests that about 40% of the of British households are struggling to pay their energy bills. It's expected that a quarter of British households won't be able to pay their energy bills by the end of the year. Um, it's this kind of real energy crisis um, which will force governments to change track. Um, and, you know, as long as people think you can get away with it and people will accept it, they will do it. But there is a threshold, a pain threshold, and an economic threshold uh, after which governments are either kicked out, will be punished, um, and eventually people will be voted in that will return to a policy that makes energy affordable. So my guess is that Australia, not least because you have these huge resources of cheap energy and uh, they compensate to some extent for the the cost of the renewables that you are some away from this threshold in Europe I think we've really hit this now and I expect European governments to water down these policies um, Britain is on the verge of um, uh, allowing its first new coal mine uh, to be approved. So this is a real thing. If you think about the climate emergency and the pressure the government is under, and they are on the verge of approving the first coal mine in, I think, 30 months, new coal mine in about 30 years. <laughs> and Germany has said that they will extend life of coal power plants. Italy is going back to coal. So only under huge pain will governments uh, roll back these policies. I don't think Australia is there yet. I'm, I'm afraid, um, as bearer of bad news, I think you will uh, see energy prices rise quite significantly in coming years before people... The difficulty we've had with coal enough. here, Benny, in in recent years is is the finance investment so you know there's a there's a proposal on the table for a new coal-fired power station in Collinsville in in um, northern Queensland um, and yet I, I in the current financial environment I can't see how that can ever get up unless the government was going to subsidize the entire thing and I don't think uh, our government would be up for that so but so the question is can you, you know, as the, as, the, as the climate of debate, if you like, is changing in, in Europe, becoming uh, a little bit more realistic, um, is, will you, do you think that the, this will filter through to the finance sector? Do you think that it will become easier to finance these kind of projects or is that another realm well, altogether? You're absolutely right. In Europe, no one is building a power plant. No one is investing in a power plant. There, there are no power plants built other than renewable projects, which, as I said, are heavily subsidized. So Europe is facing this situation 
that the power plants that are needed even to replace the ones that are being phased out are not being built. So what has the EU done, believe it or not, uh, about two or three months ago, they have declared natural gas and nuclear energy as green, sustainable forms of energy. Why have they done that? Why has the EU declared natural gas and nuclear as sustainable? Because that's the only way that any investor who wants to build a nuclear power plant or a natural gas-fired power plant would be able to go to a bank and uh, get a loan for the investment. So can you believe it that it, that was needed, the kind of stamp of green approval for natural gas and nuclear so that, and, and I'm not even entirely sure that they will be built because, you know, if you want to build, a, let's say, a, a, a gas-fired power plant, you need at least 30, 40 years to run this power plant to make it economic, um, sustainable. But who knows whether in 10 years they will say, well, we'll close down all the gas-fired power plants because of climate change. So I think um, what is going to happen is out of desperation, governments will have to subsidize now conventional power plants just for them to be being built. Um, and Australia, I don't know the situation uh, well enough to really comment, but my guess is that there will come a pain threshold where governments will be forced into um, supporting, approving more power plants just to, I mean, look at the US is a good example. Uh, Joe Biden, his approval ratings are so low that he is ready to chuck out his whole climate agenda and allow more uh, drilling for oil and gas, allow more pipelines, uh, uh, allow the, you know, and urge drillers to drill more, get more out of the ground. I mean, unheard of for a green campaigner, like, because he promised to make climate change his top priority. And now he's making the extraction of fossil fuels his main priority. So, you know, these political events easily change things radically. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that is sooner or later happening in Australia, where people are so concerned about the cost of keeping the lights on and the inflationary pressure as a result, because uh, we haven't mentioned that at all, that the rising cost of energy trickles down on all other forms of consumption, food consumption, and, you know, inflation is uh, terrible in Europe and um, people are struggling as it is. So the utopian energy policies, um, I think, only work if in good times, not in hard times. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I, th I think the crunch point will come here, Benny, and it'll, it'll come sooner rather than later because we can see the whole sequence in which coal-fired power stations will close down here um, as they reach the end of their of their planned life. Uh, what, what we found is they're closing down even sooner than expected because simply because 
look, I've got some understanding for for the energy companies. Like they would have to put some investment in in terms of maintenance, in terms of renewing plant and equipment if they want to keep these going, and it's very hard to get that financed. So it is this finance question, I think, which is is driving uh, the energy uh, pattern in this country right now. But I, I come back to your point about gas. Uh, I, I know this in a way is is, is is an accounting exercise, if you like, to declare gas a, a renewable source. Or, but I, I, I don't disagree with, with the notion that, that gas can come some way to reducing your total carbon emissions, particularly you know, fast, fast gas combined with renewables as a backup, essentially, to renewables can, is considerably less carbon-intensive than a a baseload carbon a coal-fired power station. It seems to me well, we we already have plans to put those in here. If if you were if you were really concerned about carbon emissions, that would be the way you'd go, right? It's not zero, but you've certainly chopped a lot off, and you've got a quite efficient energy system in, well, up and running. The, of course, the 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 if you're really concerned of emissions, you wouldn't even go for renewables. You would go for a Gas to nuclear policy, basically a combination of uh, natural gas and nuclear, because that's the most cost-effective and even um, most cost-effective in terms of uh, the investment as well as in terms of emissions. We have to remember that uh, a renewables natural gas system is very inefficient. The natural gas, the gas five power plants would basically work uh, as backup, which means they run less efficient, they will emit more CO2. Um, so it doesn't actually make sense to have such a system. Uh, a much more uh, reasonable, both in terms of cost and in terms of uh, emission reduction, would be a gas to nuclear uh, power system. But because the Greens are against nuclear, they and prefer renewables uh, purely for pure dogmatic reasons, um, and and counterintuitively, that system actually emits more CO2 than a gas to nuclear system. Um, they're going for that. Um, yeah, of course, natural gas has a bright future, but because everyone is going for renewables in the Western world. Everyone has to go for natural gas, and that is causing this spike in the price. So natural gas is essentially unaffordable for many, many countries uh, in Europe uh, because um, not the natural gas price in Europe is almost 10 times higher than it is in the US and perhaps, I don't know, five times higher than in Australia. So can you imagine the, the, the incredible cost? So that's why countries are beginning to go back to coal, because it used to be that gas, because of the shale revolution, uh, the gas price came down quite significantly all over the world, um, and and gas replaced a lot of coal, because it was cheaper, particularly in the U.S. but in other parts of the world as well. But now we are seeing a return to coal because gas is so expensive, and gas is so expensive, partly because um, many European and Western countries have gone uh, to prioritize renewables, and that means you have you need more gas. 
Could we deal with the, the international, the IPCC process, the international process of which Australia is a part, most countries are part of this? Uh, this has been going on for what you can tell me, Benny, more, well over 20 years now. Which process, the IPCC? Yeah. Yeah, 30 years. Yeah. 30 years, okay. Uh, it, uh, even, even its most keen uh, advocates will admit that it hasn't achieved anything like the cuts in emissions that it, it hoped to. Uh, it stumbles on um, from target to target. Uh, ends up that countries end up find all sorts of ways to game the system so that they could be seen to be greener than they are, etc., etc. But at its basis, it relies on international cooperation, right? It need it relies on all all the big emitting countries in the world, uh, you know, being being fair and decent and getting in a room and saying, yes, we'll do our bit. Now, yeah. it was always doubtful if, if China and Russia, maybe India too, but certainly China and Russia were ever going to uh, get beyond the so-called industrialising stage and then admit they had to start cutting emissions too. But, but I think in the light of what we've seen in, in Russia's behaviour in the Ukraine and, and China's increasingly belligerent behaviour in this region, you'd have to say the chances of them ever taking part in this system are probably zero. So without them, the first and the fourth emitter, emitter in the process, can it ever achieve anything? Unlikely. And that was obvious from the very start. Um, the developing countries have no intention whatsoever to curtail um, their economic growth or using the cheapest form of energy and the cheapest form or cheapest forms of energy still remain fossil fuel based. Um, China has made absolutely clear even in recent months that energy security will remain their top priority and that in China means coal. Um, there's no chance whatsoever that they will ever agree to legally binding cuts in emissions. Um, we've seen this over the last 30 years. There is no chance of that. And interestingly, I don't know whether you saw this, but uh, John Kerry, the climate envoy, um, Joe Biden's climate envoy, has um, today or yesterday gave an interview saying that um, given these kind of uh, problems, international problems, he, we would have to shift the target now, the climate target, to one point, uh, to point, hold on, what is it? Oh yeah, to 1.8 degree warming, Celsius warming from 1.5. So he's shifting the goalposts now uh, on the climate targets and the emissions targets because he can see that they're not getting anywhere. Um, and we, we knew that, that this was a utopian dream and a realistic and pragmatic policy uh, for Australia or any Western government would be to say that unilateral decarbonization is uh, self-defeating, um, is futile. It doesn't actually lead to any emission cuts because we've seen over the last 30 years emissions are going up, will continue to go up until the big emitters all agree to 
legally binding cuts. Now, this is a condition or a prerequisite for any uh, government in the Western world that is reasonable. Um, that has never happened. So Western government always said we have to go first, we have to be a world leader and if we show the world how we can decarbonize and the rest of the world will follow. In reality, of course, the rest of the world looks at Europe and, and, and sees that the decarbonization policies, the net zero policies are only causing enormous economic uh, damage and social upheaval. And they are saying, we're not that stupid. We're not going down this route. So I think the chickens are coming home to roost for uh, Western countries that are beginning to realize that the developing and emerging nations are not going to follow this path because the renewables have failed. If the renewable path in Europe or in the US or in Australia would be such a success, every other country would follow. But because they have failed in economically and technologically and are failing, the others are reluctant to follow our path. That's the reality. Benny, thank you very much for your time and, and your perspective on these things. And uh, we continue to follow your work with interest. Thank you, Nick. And uh, good luck. Thank you. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Music